Well, do keep your Bibles open. The sermon is early on in the service so that you don't go to sleep uh, at the end. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to look at this, uh, this story, uh, one of the famous stories in John's Gospel. It follows hard after the incident in chapter 3 that is well-known, the story of Jesus interacting with one of the moral, social, religious elite of Orthodox Judaism, and uh, which resulted in his equivocal and somewhat ambiguous response to Jesus. And then in this chapter, in complete contrast, we find Jesus uh, uh, interacting with uh, a person who is the morally and socially worst representative, you can imagine, of an unorthodox and ethically mixed sect and what is astounding, what is shocking indeed, is that her response to Jesus is an entirely different response uh, than that of the religious and very upright Nicodemus that we read about in chapter 3. The outward markers uh, that John's readers, original readers, would immediately pick up on are the woman's ethnicity, her gender, her religious tradition, and her moral record. And yet all of these, we will see, fade into insignificance against the primacy of Jesus' project, a project later spelt out in the passage we read at the beginning of the service, uh, later on in, uh, in, these, in this chapter, in verse 21 and following, where Jesus makes it clear that his project, his purpose, his intention is undergirded by the Father's will, and the Father's will is that He is seeking true worshipers, people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we shall find that Jesus is having this encounter with this woman because this is primarily what He was sent to do. He has come looking for worshipers, and this woman, this unlikely person, is in fact one of those whom Jesus is seeking out. Well, look at, the, look at the context. It begins with a strategic retreat. As Jesus leaves the region where antagonism is hotting up, and he moves to a safer region of Galilee, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed. Now, you mustn't for one minute think that this is Jesus running from trouble, that somehow or other the popularity that was spreading, the news about him that was spreading, struck alarm in Jesus' mind, because already in John chapter 3, verse 35, we've been told that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus has some control, some command. We also know that Jesus knows when to pick a fight. He knows that he's working to a timetable. He's already in chapter 2 of this gospel, explain to his mother, of all people, that he is working to a timetable that she's unfamiliar with. This is not the right time. God has appointed a time for him to suffer and die, and that was not the time. Later on in chapter 10, he's going to say this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own account. Jesus is not afraid to lay down his life, but it has to be according to the Father's timetable and nobody else's. So this is not the time to provoke the final conflict. And so he moves from a place of hostility 
and goes up towards Galilee, which will be a place of hospitality. People will receive him there. So circumstances have precipitated his leaving, but there is more at work in the story than that. Right at the very beginning of the gospel, we were told in chapter 1 about Jesus that the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. But as yet, we have to find out what this grace looks like in action. And in this chapter, we see grace in action. Grace and truth shines clearly through the elements of this story. Now, I want to walk us through the story this evening because it seems to me just in these opening parts of the story, we have an insight into Jesus' approach to doing what we are thinking about this evening as we, as we uh, install Will Spokes as our associate minister. He has been working among us in the whole area of outreach up to this point, and he's been teaching us some principles by way of example as well as from the pulpit that I think we see illustrated in this story. Because when it comes to outreach, I want you to notice that Jesus is doing it here, and I want you to notice, first of all, how intentional, how intentional Jesus is. He is not leaving Judea because he's afraid of the Pharisees. He is leaving it for his own purposes. And so we read that he had, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. There is upon Jesus this internal sense of necessity, of compulsion, almost. And we've already learned, for example, in chapter 3, that God gave His only Son for the salvation of the world. We've already learned in chapter 3 that Jesus says that He was sent from above. He was sent from heaven into the world. We, we read in chapter 3, verse 34, He whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he, God, gives the Spirit to him, Jesus, without measure. He has an immeasurable supply of the Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now you take all of that and you bring it all together and it's breathtaking. God loved the world and gave his only Son. God sent His Son into the world. God loves His Son. His Son speaks the very words of God. His Son has the full measure of the Spirit of God upon Him. Jesus is come into the world. He has come from above. He has come down here to where we are. He has come into this fallen, sinful world as the God-speaking, Spirit-filled, God-sent Son of God on a mission, on a divine mission. And as we come to this chapter, we have to see that, read that, behind the necessity that is suggested here in verse 4. Later on, as we've seen, the Father is seeking worshipers. Here is the necessity. Here is the driving compulsion behind the ministry of Jesus in the world. He is seeking worshipers for the Father, worshipers in spirit and truth, worshipers that will worship God the Father through the Spirit of God and through the truth of God, who is in fact Jesus himself. 
And so we're not surprised to find intentionality here. Intentionality in the way he went. He needed, he had to pass through Samaria. Did he have to go through Samaria? We know that if you're in Judea and you're going to go to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria. Though most good Orthodox, Bible-believing, kosher-eating Jews would probably prefer to go around Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. But what we've discovered so far is that Jesus wasn't in Judea proper near Jerusalem. He was rather out east by the Jordan, and there he'd been preaching, and there his disciples had been baptizing. And in that case, Galilee is due north. You don't have to go near Samaria. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it raises a question. Why did he have to go there? And the answer of the passage, the answer of chapter 3, the answer of what it says here in chapter 4 is that it was this necessity. Necessity gripped him. It's the kind of passion you find in the Apostle Paul when he says, and I'm quoting from the King James Version because I didn't look it up in the ESV and I just have to go on my memory and I learned the King Jimmy. And what King Jimmy Version says is, necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That was my favorite verse as a boy, growing up and realizing that God has put his hand upon me. Necessity is less left upon me. Necessity is upon me. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Jesus is going to Samaria because he is on a mission. And his mission takes him to what is left of all Israel, the ten tribes. He goes to people who are not his own because his own will not receive him. And he goes to seek people out there. The intentionality of Jesus going out of his way to reach this woman is a lesson to the church of Jesus Christ today. That if we're going to reach men and women, we have to be intentional about it. And we have to go out of our way to do it. It is not something that will just come and turn up on our doorstep. Occasionally people will turn up in church. But generally speaking... If we are going to reach those who have not just simply been covenant children and growing up amongst us, if we're going to reach the world, we have to go out into the highways and the byways, into the streets and apartments and the homes of our center city and a larger community in which we live and work and breathe in order to reach people for Christ. It has to be intentional. It won't just happen. We have to think how to do it? Jesus has to go to Samaria to reach the remnants of Israel, to reach this mixed-race people. All that was left of all Israel that had been defeated, destroyed, and dispersed by the Assyrians so long before. He's intentional in the way that he takes. And he's intentional in the place where he rests. We have a geographical comment here that he stopped by Jacob's well. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. What was J Jacob's other name? Israel. Correct. Israel. We don't get that often at 10th, but if you want to do some feedback, that's okay. It indicates that you're listening. Jacob's other name was Israel. 
One of the things that John's gospel is going, to, is going to demonstrate to us is that Jesus comes as the new Israel. He comes as a greater Jacob. He comes as a new Israel. Not only does he come as a new Israel, but also in John's gospel, as we saw right at the very beginning, he comes as a greater than Moses. Chapter 1, Jesus is greater than Moses. The law came by Moses. Grace and peace, grace and truth rather, came through Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, we saw Jesus compare himself with the serpent, the bronze serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness. Only Jesus is raised and not, he not only brings healing to people who are dying, he brings salvation to people who are lost and who are dying. And because of this connection, both with Jacob and with the well, Jacob's well, and the connection with Jesus being the new Israel and the new Moses, we think of another well. We think of a man who sat by a well and met a woman. Moses was tired. He rested by a well. He met Zipporah there, who became his wife, and he was given hospitality there. And from there, he went back to Egypt. And from Egypt, he delivered the people of God who were in bondage there and brought them out to liberty. And what we discover here as we read this, we put it in its context and we say, a greater Israel is here. A greater Moses is here. He is about the business of bringing people out of bondage and captivity. He is about bringing people out of sin and slavery to sin and bringing them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He is about the business of being the Savior of the world. And he comes to the well, you notice, and tired as he was, we read, he sat by the well. That's an interesting expression there, tired as he was. The, the, construction, the construction suggests this. Jesus was not only tired, Jesus looked tired. Jesus looked tired. Isn't that a wonderful thing? When I discovered that this week, I thought, isn't that the most amazing thing? Sometimes, you know, you go into the office and you think you're as bright as anything and you sit down and your PA says to you, you look tired. I always think what she means is you look old, but <laughs> tired is the word that she uses. And uh, Jesus looked tired. How far had he come? Can you think of this? Where had he come from in order to be sitting by that well, looking tired and being tired? He hadn't just come from the Jordan, due north, and then turned westwards and gone into Samaria. He had come further than that. The Word, the eternal Word, the Word that was with God in the beginning, the Word that had thrown stars into space, the Word who had made all things, the Word who was with God and the Word who was God, had become flesh. Weary, tired, tired-looking flesh in order to reach this woman, where she was. 
It stresses the lengths to which love goes in order to reach the beloved. It stresses that this one who was from above had come down from heaven. In fact, later on in chapter 4, verse 38, he even talks about the labor, the hard labor involved in reaping the harvest. Here is Jesus going through the hard labor that it takes to reach someone and bring them salvation. And every detail stresses the intentionality of Jesus, the length to which he is prepared to go to reach people. It's the hottest time of the day. He is tired and looks tired. He is thirsty and he asks for a drink. He's among the most unorthodox people. He's about to meet an immoral woman. He is as far from heaven as it gets. And he's there to reach this person and to save this person. And I want to say to you this evening, you may not be a Christian person, but I want you to understand this is the length to which God has gone in order that he might reach you. He has gone to extraordinary lengths. He will go to even greater lengths as the story unfolds, even to the point of death on the Roman, Roman gibbet in order that he might save you. He is intentional. Secondly, you see how, how countercultural, countercultural Jesus is. Just to recap, back at the end of chapter 2, we read this, that Jesus did not entrust himself to some people because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about what was in a human being because he himself knew what was in people. He knew what was in people. And at that point, John records the visit of this Jewish ruler and professor. He comes with all the self-confidence of someone who has been to the best schools, enjoyed the best education, had an immaculate moral record, is religiously orthodox, wields significant influence in the community. He comes to Jesus and there is nothing reticent, there is nothing hesitant about his approach to Jesus, nothing tentative in the way he speaks to Jesus. He's one of these people who in England, you would say, had been to Oxbridge. You know, he's been to Oxford or Cambridge, uh, the high places. This guy, this guy has been bred to have confidence since the earliest days. And he comes to Jesus as an equal. And he's put Jesus in a mental box until Jesus strips him of his illusions. But now, here in chapter 4, here you have a person and there are all kinds of barriers between Jesus and this person. There's the gender barrier. This is a woman. Jesus talked with a woman. No big deal, you say. Back then it was a really big deal. Not only did he talk to a woman, but do you notice the disciples weren't there? There was nobody there to make sure that everything was being done decently and in order. This was risky conversation. When the disciples come back later on and they find him talking to the woman, they're stunned that they find this. Because it was unknown for a man to talk to a woman, especially 
in rural contexts, and to initiate the conversation as he does would have been considered socially inappropriate. According to Jewish scholars, Jewish men were to avoid unnecessary conversations with women. They could talk to their wives, by the way, but not to anybody else. And not even to their wives in public. It was inappropriate for a scholar or a rabbi to speak to a woman. In fact, strictly speaking, according to the law, a wife could be divorced if she spoke to a man who wasn't her husband in the street. If a man... In fact, the experts, the law experts, began to worry that even if a man spoke to his own sister in the street, that might be misinterpreted and misunderstood and therefore raise all kinds of questions of morality and therefore it was probably better if you didn't address your sister in the street. Not only that, but every day a pious Jewish man prayed, Lord, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. No rabbi would initiate conversation with a woman. <clears throat> in fact, in the rabbinical law, it says this, one, <clears throat> one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife. It is forgiven, forbidden to give a woman any greeting. And now, we know that Jesus breaks down a lot of these cultural barriers. Uh, he speaks to women, as he does here, on their own. He teaches women on their own. Witness Mary, the sister of Lazarus. It is a woman, Mary, another Mary, who sees the tomb empty and gives the news to the, the disciples. Jesus is the true liberator of women. And in this chapter, he is presented as the savior of the world, of men and women and boys and girls, of black and white and every other shade in between. He overcomes the gender barrier. He overcomes the ethnic barrier. Actually, it's more than an ethnic barrier. It's kind of a racial, ethnic, religious barrier all rolled into one and summarized in the very name Samaritan. To the Orthodox Jew, these were the very lowest form of life. The uh, history of the Samaritans goes back to the year 722 B.C. when the Assyrians attacked what was called Israel, northern Israel, the, 12, the, the ten tribes there, and they deported most of the population. They resettled it with other people, people who were pagan in their, in their background. They intermarried with what was left of these Israelite people. And they brought with them their gods, and they worshipped Jehovah still, but they also worshipped Baal, mongrel type of religion. When the Assyrians had gone and the Persians had gone and the Greeks were in power, the Samaritans worshipped Yahweh. They worshipped the God of, of uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but they also worshipped Zeus, the Greek God. Jews regarded Samaritans as children of political rebels, racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by unacceptable elements. They were unclean. You came into contact with them, you were unclean. And yet, Jesus went there deliberately. In fact, after his resurrection, when he sends out his disciples, he sends them to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Now, don't get all sentimental here. Jesus never suggests that Samaritan worship is the same as Jewish worship. Quite the contrary, in fact. He tells her later that salvation is of the Jews. 
And he tells her later that her worship, the worship of Samaria, was ignorant worship. Jesus doesn't mince his words. He doesn't play games. They were not right. Jesus tells them that. But he loves them. He loves them and he wants to reach out to them. When the disciples returned, they saw him talking with this woman and they learned that the gospel is not just for somebody's like Nicodemus. It is for nobody's like this woman. And there was a social barrier. There's a serious question raised by the fact that this woman comes to collect water at midday when everybody else is resting from the intense heat. There's a question. Why did she come alone at midday? Normally, women went for water as a group. It was a kind of safety thing. You went together as a group. I suppose there would be conversation. Some less kind people might say gossip, but a conversation. The women would get together and they'd chat together and they would collect the water and then they'd go home as a group. It was safety in numbers. Here this woman comes on her own at the hottest time of the day. Later on we discover why. It's a very small village. And she's been with six of the men of the village. <laughs> she was a threat to every woman who had a husband or whatever in that village. She'd been married five times, and now she's living in a common-law relationship with someone. And that would have been disapproved of, even in Samaria. They had, they had a high view. They still held to the five books of Moses, and they had a high view of the law. But you notice that Jesus is not put off by this social barrier. We see him talking to the churchman. Churchman who's a bit full of himself in chapter 3. Now here in chapter 4, he's talking to this lady who has this shady moral history. What do we learn from that? We learn that Jesus is no respecter of persons. Jesus does not have a kind of a, you know, this person is more important. I need to give them a bit more attention or time. I need to be more kind of considerate of them because of the influence they have and the background they have and the education they have. And so therefore, I will show a bit of favoritism towards this kind of person. And this other person, well, you know, we tolerate them, we'll talk to them, smile at them, and so on. But, but actually, when the chips are down, we'll give more attention to this. Jesus hates that kind of distinction. He hates that kind of distinction. He doesn't do it. He warns against it. He says we must not distinguish between one and another and give brownie points or have a kind of point system whereby some people get more than other people. No, no, not Jesus. He is no respecter of persons. We're told, aren't we, that he knew what is in someone. He knew what was in this woman, as we shall see. He knew exactly. Nothing took him by surprise. He's not put off by her record. He's not put off by her wrongdoing. He's not put off by her failures. He's not put off by her questions or her unwillingness to think. And he's not put off by yours. He's not put off by yours. He reaches out to those who don't know him. Now, here's an interesting thing. There's a very great contrast between the way in which Jesus models how you reach out to those who don't know him, who are not, we would say, not converted, not saved, they're not in a right relationship with God. There's a big difference between the way in which he deals with those kinds of people and the kinds of people, maybe like Nicodemus, who should know better. You take, you take the whole matter of uh, 
church discipline, for example. In church discipline, we are meant to treat those who are believers who have sinned in a way that is different from the way Jesus deals with this woman who has sinned. Let me read to you what Paul says when he's giving guidance about this. He says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, is Paul contradicting Jesus' behavior here? No, he goes on to explain. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul is saying it's okay to mix with those kinds of people who aren't believers. They're not members of your church. They're not members of the people of God. It's okay to get to know them, to love them, to befriend them, to be around them, to sit at table with them, to befriend them. It's a good thing. Jesus did that. Jesus is doing that here. That is a good thing, says Paul. But he goes on to say this, no, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? None. Is it not those inside the church that we are to judge? So he distinguishes, you see, between the treatment of someone who is a member, who is a believer, and who has sinned, and who we are to avoid. We are, we are to isolate, and we're to do that for their own good, by the way. We're to show them by our example that their relationship with God has been broken by their sin. Therefore, their relationship with the church has been broken by their sin with a hope that they will see that, sense it, feel it, repent, and come back. But when it comes to someone who isn't a believer, there are no barriers there are no barriers. We do as Jesus did. He is our model. He is our example. We can have fellowship with Him. Not at all meaning, says Paul, the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. How cross-cultural Jesus is. He sees no barrier too great to reach out to someone. And then the third thing that strikes me as we look at this passage is how relational Jesus is. The disciples are off buying food, by the way, from unclean Samaritans. That would have been a challenge to, to some fellow countrymen. And here sitting by the well, Jesus initiates the conversation. You notice, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. She's taken aback, but the lady knows how to talk to men. She knows how to flirt with men. And she begins to play with Jesus. All this talk about wells and water and drinking can be sexually loaded language, and she's playing with Jesus, teasing him, tempting him, and he resists her charms. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
sobers up. He sobers her up. He grabs her attention by talking to her. And when she starts to be herself, he sobers her up and he offers her living water. Water has been very significant up to now in John's gospel. It will be as we go on. Chapter 1, John baptizing with water. Chapter 2, Jesus turning water into wine. The water of purification into wine. Chapter 3, Jesus telling Nicodemus he needed to be born again of water and the Spirit, the cleansing water of the Spirit. And then in chapter 7, he will say, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and there will be rivers of living water flow out of him. The water represents the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. You would find water. You would find satisfying, soul-quenching water. You will find what you need, a greater thing. You've come here today because you're thirsty, it's hot. You want water to quench your thirst. I have water that will quench your soul thirst. Your soul thirst, Jesus says. He doesn't give her the gospel in its entirety. He starts where she is. He addresses her where she is. He offers her something where she is. And begins to lead her to an understanding of what the gospel is. Now, you may be here, or you may know someone who is soul-thirsty, who's looking for meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in life and finding it nowhere. She had tried it. She tried it in men, and she tried it in other ways as well, presumably. And she was still dissatisfied. Jesus sees the dissatisfaction at the very heart of her nature. And he offers her the water of life. Malcolm Muggeridge was a, a famous writer, broadcaster, and journalist in the United Kingdom in his day, and he wrote this. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the Internal Revenue Service. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they are nothing. They are less than nothing. They are a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. One draft of the living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who and what 
they are. That's good news, isn't it? For you, for me, and for the world. Let's pray. We thank you for our Lord Jesus' intentionality in reaching out to a world that was lost. We thank you that we, he was countercultural, overcoming barriers that would have been real issues for many people in order that he might reach those who were lost. Thank you for how relational he is, building, taking time to build a relationship with this woman, beginning where she was, and not overloading her initially, but, but trying to find, a, trying to find some, something in her soul, and then bringing to bear on that the great offer of water, the water of life that could satisfy her. Lord, we pray that in all of our dealings with people, we would remember that we are following the example of him who is the great Savior of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.